I wanted you to see those images because for some of us, if you've been in what you would define as a wilderness experience in your life, it looks a lot more like the footage on the video than the stage up here because you're looking for that oasis and you still haven't found it yet. You ever been there before? Where you're going, you know, that, that this looks a little just too tropical and inviting to me. And uh, my reality has been more of the desert, more of the heat, more of the, the sun-scorched uh, days. And, and I want to talk today for the second and final week on this idea of in the wilderness. Just uh, before we get into the scriptures, and you can turn there now if you want. We're going to be in the book of Numbers this morning. I'm going to begin in Numbers 9 and 10. We're also going to be in the book of Exodus. Those are both in the first five books of the Bible, so start at the beginning and you will get there quickly. As you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge some, some friends that are here today. Uh, J.R. and Karen Anderson are some friends of ours. Uh, they, their whole family was here in the first service. Their son, I see Michael, is still here this morning. Uh, is, is Paul here He's somewhere here. Uh, James and Brittany and their daughter Nova were here in the 9 a.m. service, but they're here all the way from Dallas, Texas. Would you make them welcome? <laughs> JR, I love you, brother. Karen. JR, uh, he's one of the board members at the church there in Texas where I served on staff for 10 years, and he leads the men's ministry. And yesterday, he shared a powerful word with our men. We had an awesome breakfast. Man, Tony, you guys knocked that breakfast out of the park. That was so good. I skipped lunch, man. It was, that was good. It, that, that hit all the spots. But uh, JR came and spoke yesterday. It was so good to just have them here with us to, to be able to have you in church this morning. Just means a lot to me. So if you hear some amens that are a little slower than you're used to hearing, that's just that southern drawl. You know, it just, it just, they just say them a little longer, and, and I love it. Uh, I hope your amens are ready this morning. I want to talk to you about being in the wilderness. And last week, if I can just recap this for a moment, we, we really let in with this thought, and we need to all remember this, that the same God who created the garden is the God who created the wilderness. And that as much as God would take man and place him in the garden, sometimes God puts man in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where we are sent. We also said last week, not only is it a place where we're sent, but it's a place where we're shaped. God molds us in the wilderness. I mean, we would all love for, you know, to be able to just give your life to Jesus, and then, then it's a, just a rose petal life, you know, just everything's easy, but that's not the way it is. Reality is when, when God saves us, he begins to shape us. God has you uh, to be his instrument. God has a plan for your life. He wants to mold you into a, a usable vessel to be the sword of the Lord. Have you ever noticed before that swords are not forged in hammocks? They're forged on the anvil and in the fire. And sometimes we say, God, you know, we sing songs like we sang earlier. I give myself away so you can use me. And then God begins to shape our life. And we start saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because it's tough. Because sometimes the fire's hot and the anvil stings, but, but God shapes us in the wilderness, but he also strengthens us. And we talked about that last week, that God strengthens us in the wilderness. And, and most importantly, God shows up in the wilderness. We talked about how Moses met God at a burning bush. 
You know, it, it's so much more fun to talk about the promised land, to be honest with you. It's so much more fun to just talk about all the good things God has for us and, and all the good places that God wants to take us to. But I've noticed in my life, maybe you've noticed in yours, that for all those promises, and they are true, and they are yes and amen in Christ, and they can be ours, but for all of those good things that God wants to lead us to, he usually leads us through a wilderness to get to them. Have you noticed that? And sometimes, you know, as Exodus says, the Lord led them, but not on the straight path. He led them in a roundabout way. And and sometimes God's roundabout ways can cause us to doubt that he's leading us at all. But the reality is, he is leading us. When I think about the children of Israel, you know, in in the bondage in Egypt, the promise of a freedom, the promise of a new land, the hope of getting to a place where it flows with milk and honey. That was enough to, to catalyze the whole nation, to rally behind Moses and to move out. But once they got out, once they got into the wilderness, the Bible says that they began to say, we would rather go back to Egypt. Can you imagine that? 400 years of slavery. In other words, the people that were saying this have never known anything except slavery for generations. And yet they said, we would rather go back to Egypt. They began to curse the day of their deliverance. In fact, scripture tells us they even cursed the day of their birth. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you were so low that you let those words come out of your mouth, I wish I hadn't even been born. Or I wish it could just end. I wish it was just over. If I could just lay my head down and not get up tomorrow, everybody would be better off. If you've ever gone that far, I can promise you, you've been in the wilderness. Those were the words that they were saying. But I want to tell you this morning that in the wilderness, we get a revelation about God. There's just three things I want to tell you that we discover in profound ways in the wilderness. And the first one is this, God's presence. We discover God's presence in a new and profound way when we're in the wilderness. Look with me at Numbers chapter 9. Beginning in verse 15, it says, On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That's how it continued to be. The cloud covered it. And at night, it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted, verse 17 says, from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this before and thought, well, gee, must be nice. I'll be honest, I have. You know, because I have people come to me all the time and they say, you know, I, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know where God wants me to go. But wouldn't it be awesome if we just had an actual cloud? It just hovered over the church. And, and whenever the cloud moved, the people followed the cloud. And whenever the cloud stopped, everybody stopped. Look a little farther with me. It says in verse 22 to 23, it says, whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with the command through Moses. I mean, wouldn't it be cool? You know, somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I, you know, I, I just feel like I'm in a season of shifting. I just, I feel like I'm in a season of change right now. I, I, I don't really know what the Lord's telling me to do. And, and I could just kind of like go to the window and go, 
think he wants you to go that way. Wouldn't that be great? I, I, I don't know if I should take that new job or, or if I should just stay where I'm at. I think we should stay. Let's just stay. I mean, wouldn't that be great? But the reality is every time the cloud lifted, they moved. And I love that phrase. It says it three times in what I've read. When the cloud lifted, they moved. I couldn't get past that word. The word lift is the word that God spoke to me over our church for this year. And I just want to say prophetically over somebody's life today, God wants to begin to lift the cloud. You've been looking for direction. You've been looking for purpose. You've been looking for for, uh, the next step. God wants to lift the cloud so that you can begin to move. And here's the good news today. We do have a cloud. We have a cloud. You, You don't have to envy the Israelites walking through the wilderness because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number one, therefore... We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Come on. It says, let us throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run this race marked out for us. We run this race. Why? Because there's a cloud. Do you think this morning, if if one of these Israelites were to walk into our worship service this morning and, and to look at all of us and hear us talk about our wilderness, do you think we would actually envy them, or do you think they would envy us? I mean, I know when, when they're not here to defend themselves, it's easy for us to go, oh, sure, well, you, you got a visible cloud. I mean, it's easy to follow God when you got a visible cloud. And they're going, are you kidding? You, you have a cloud of witnesses. Look, look, look at what the, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says this. It says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. If they could come and testify today, they'd say, wow, sure would have been nice if we had somebody to follow. Sure would have been nice if it was somebody else's body scattered all over the wilderness and and not ours. But I want to tell you today, church, we have a cloud. We have a great cloud of witnesses. They're all through this book. Their life and their story is an example for us to follow. And we have more than just the witness of Old Testament men and women. The Bible says in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came and dwelled in the temple, that the cloud of God's glory came and filled the house in the temple. But in the new covenant that we live in, the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells on the inside of us. Some of you are looking up for a cloud. You need to look in. The spirit of Jesus lives on the inside of you. You don't have to wait for God to to move something in the skies. He wants to move in your heart. He wants to speak on the inside to your heart and life. You got more clouds than that? The Bible says in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light into my path. So God has given us his self-disclosing revelation of himself. I learned this years ago. Maybe you heard it too. That Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. God's given us a roadmap. He's given us a blueprint to know his plan and to know his purpose. We got we to gotta look to the cloud and follow his lead. I mean, the Israelites, they had to stand in long lines just waiting their turn to talk to Moses. The Bible says that 
Because the veil of the temple was rent in two when Jesus went to the cross, we don't have to go through a high priest. We don't have to stand in a long line to get somebody else to tell us God's word. We can enter into the very throne room of heaven and we can approach our Father. We have a cloud. How many of you have a cell phone? Can I just add, is it backed up in the cloud? Because some of you, you, I'm trying to help you this morning. You're a slow adopter on technology, and you got thousands of pictures and everybody's phone number, and and it's not backed up in the cloud. And so all your faith is in that little thin piece of glass that you put in your pocket or you put on the desk, and one of these days, it's going to get knocked over or lost or stolen, and, and I'm good at forgetting where I put things. And I can tell you, my phone is backed up in the cloud, which means I don't have to worry when I lose it. Now, I don't want to have to pay to replace it, but the reality is, I mean, there used to be a time when I knew a lot of my friends' phone numbers. I, I, I don't remember my own phone number half the time now. Is any, anybody else in that camp? But I got all my contacts in the cloud. And for some of you, you've been serving Jesus long enough that that's true for you. All those that you used to know and walk with and love, they're in the cloud. They're in the clouds. you got more contacts up there than you do down here. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that one day the trumpet of God is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise, and we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet them in the cloud. We're going into the cloud. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. God's leading us. He's teaching us even in the wilderness that my presence is with you. The next chapter, chapter 10, God gives Moses instruction about making two trumpets. He says, you're going to have two trumpets because there's a lot of people, and I want to make sure they know where to go and when to go there. So he gave them the trumpets, and he said, when you blow both the trumpets and you play this tune, everybody come together. When you only play one trumpet and you play that tune, just the leaders come together. When you play this tune... On this trumpet, all the people on the west know it's time to get up and to go. When you play this tune on that trumpet, everybody on the east knows it's time to get up and to move. And so it's really easy, right? I mean, all you got to do is follow the trumpet. Just listen for the sound of the trumpet. How many of you know as the men and women of God, we're still called to listen for the sound of the trumpet? The Bible says one day the trumpet call of God shall sound. And the church is going to be caught up to respond. See, Jesus is the cloud. Jesus is the trumpet. And he said these words. He said, never will I leave you. Never, never will I forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. It's in the wilderness that we get a new revelation of God's presence in our life. God had told Moses, I'm going to lead you. I mean, I'm going to put a cloud over the tabernacle, and I'm going to tell you when to blow the trumpets, and you can follow me. I'm going to lead you. But yet in chapter 10 of Numbers, the Bible says that Moses approached his father-in-law, Jethro, who had helped him in the past, and he said, Jethro, the Lord's telling us it's time to leave Mount Sinai. We're going, we're going into the wilderness. We want you to come with us. And Jethro said, no, no, it's time for me to head home. I've done what I came to do. And instead of parting ways, the Bible says that, that Moses began to plead with him. He began to plead and, and ask for Jethro to, to show up and to help him. Look, look at it with me in Numbers chapter 10. In verse 31, it says, 
But Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the wilderness. And you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we'll share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. He said, we need your help. Who? Who needs your help? God? Does God, does God need Jethro's help? I mean, come on. God had just said, I'm going to lead you. I want you to, to follow the cloud, and I want you to blow this trumpet, and I'm going to leave you. And, and here's Moses saying, you know what we really need? We need somebody that's been in the wilderness before. We need, we need a wilderness expert. We need a survival guide. That's, that's what we really need. And, and, you know, it's fun to pick on people that aren't here to defend themselves, right? But come on, let's be honest. We're the same way. We're the same way. We look at the situations we're in, and, and we say, oh, God, I trust you, God. I want you to lead me. But, but I, you know, I, I really need to talk to somebody that, that's been through this before. I need an expert. I need a guide. I need somebody to lead us. And, and by all means, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. God can use a lot of people to speak into your life. But how many of you know we got to look to Jesus to be our source? we got to look to Jesus to lead us and to guide us and not look to some expert to lead us out of the place that God has led us into. See, the problem is if you don't recognize God's presence in the wilderness, then you're never going to appreciate God's provision. And that's the second thing, that we get a revelation of God's provision when we're in the wilderness. The Bible says in Psalm 136, it says it over a dozen times, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. It doesn't say, give thanks to the Lord when he is good. This is who he is. He's good. This is who he is. He's faithful. James says it like this. He says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting of shadows. He's he's the same. He's good on Sunday. He's good on Monday. He's good on Tuesday. He's good on Wednesday. Every day, he's the same. He does not change. Your mood may change. Your attitude may change. Your outlook may change. But this is who he is. God is good. And we get a revelation of, of his provision for our lives in the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 16. Go, go there with me. In Exodus 16, the Israelites are for the first time free. After 400 years of bondage in Egypt... They're finally free. And they're experiencing, for the first time, life outside of captivity. They've, they've come through the Red Sea, which is symbolic of our salvation. They crossed through. They came out of death and, and into new life. They came out of bondage and, and into freedom. But in that process, they learned something. They began to realize, for the first time in their lives, that freedom has requirements, too. That when you're a free person, there's a difference between being set free and staying free. Anybody ever been there before? You've experienced that. It's one thing to be set free. I'm going to tell you, God can set you free in a moment. If you pray and you ask God to, to deliver you, he can do that. And he will do that for you today if you'll call on him. But staying free is a challenge. And if you're in that place, Let me encourage you to pay close attention to this story because it's in the wilderness of freedom that you learn to depend on God's provision. Sometimes freedom can be a wilderness. 
And in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, it says this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, if that's all you knew about Egypt, how many of you want to take a vacation uh, to Pharaoh's kingdom? You know, yeah. I mean, he said, no, man, back then we had all the food we wanted. I mean, you'd think it was great. You'd think that they were living in the lap of luxury, and the reality is this is a tactic of the enemy. They've stepped into freedom for the first time, and with freedom comes the uncertainty. And now they look back longingly at the consistency of the shackles that they used to wear. It's like they forgot about the stripes that have scarred their back. It's like they forgot about the, the bruises on their wrist from the shackles that they wore all those years. And they go, boy, wasn't the food good back there? I mean, I'll tell you, if I could go back to Egypt and get some of that. And isn't that the way the enemy works in our lives? And you, you struggle to overcome, to get free, to break an addiction, to get your life back in order. Finally, you, you start to get the pieces together. God sets you free and sets you on a right path, and the devil just starts talking in your ear, and before long, you're going, you know, it, well, it, we did have some good times, didn't we? If I, could just, if I could just go back, just get one more, man, just get one more hit. I mean, if I could just feel that buzz again. I mean, if I, if I could just, just go out and have that have that weekend. Just, just live it up one more time. And we, we start fantasizing about the prison that we pleaded with God to get us out of because we forgot about the pain of it. There's a wilderness called freedom. And sometimes God wants to lead you in it. And it's in that wilderness that you begin to get a revelation of God's provision for your life. Look at the next verse with me. Verse four of Exodus 16 says, the Lord said to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. Because the people were crying out, for the food in Egypt, he said, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for the day. In this way, I'll test them and I'll see whether they will follow my instructions. So God, God gave them an opportunity and with the opportunity comes a test. He said, I want them to go out every day and you're going to gather enough food for that day. Don't, don't get enough for the whole week, just get enough for today. And they were to do that for six days. On the sixth day, they were supposed to get enough for two days because they were supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy and not go out and work on the Sabbath. But like us, some of them, they went out the first day, they went out the second day, they went out the third day and the fourth day and, and the fifth day. And then they got ready for the sixth day and they thought, well, I mean, we're going to collect enough here for, for today and, and for tomorrow, but I, I, what if God doesn't do it again on Monday? I mean, what if God's not faithful next week like he was this week? So, so they started collecting extra more than what God had told them. They tried to hoard a little bit in the pantry. And the Bible says when they opened up that jar on Monday morning, it was reeked and rotten and it stank. Because God wanted to teach them to follow him as the God who provides. Say, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I want, to, I want to meet your needs today. Jesus said it like this when he taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day. I want to provide for you 
right now. And Jesus, at another place, he said to all of his followers, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He went on to say, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in me. And everybody started looking for the door. But the Bible says in Psalms, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. They weren't talking about cannibalism. They were talking about having a personal experience with God that satisfies your soul like nothing else. Deuteronomy tells us, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen, Jesus can set you free in a moment, but staying free takes work. And the way you're going to do it is by getting up every morning and going out and gathering today's provisions. It means getting up and and opening up your Bible and saying, God, give me today what I need. I don't know what I need today. You're the only one that knows what I need today. But God, give me today's provisions. God will begin to to feed you and strengthen you and, and strengthen you with his word and strengthen you in your prayer life and help you to grow to trust him. The problem is when we're not in the wilderness, we got storehouses full. We got plan B on the back burner. We got plan C over there. We might risk something, but we've got a safety net in place. No, it's when you get out in the wilderness and you realize if if God leaves me now, this isn't going to work. And so we get a revelation of the consistent, faithful, trustworthy hand of God. He provides. He provides. He's faithful. Don't, Don't be like Lot's wife. God God sent angels to set Lot and his wife free right before judgment came to Sodom. And he gave them one instruction. He said, I'm going to set you free, but don't look back. Just don't look back. The Bible says Lot and his his wife and their daughters, they, they left Sodom and they went out, but Lot's wife looked back. And it wasn't just a sideways glance. The inference is that she looked back longing. She was looking back at the pots she used to eat at in Egypt. She was looking back at Sodom, at her old life, going, oh, I'm sure going to miss the good old days. Oh, you know what? Those are some good times. I know that there was a lot of bad stuff going on. But she looked back, and the Bible says in that moment, she was turned into a pillar of salt. She became a memorial in that moment for everyone who's ever been set free but didn't stay free because they looked back. And I challenge you today, don't look back. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying that, that freedom's not a wilderness sometimes, because it is. Don't look back. Don't go, don't go back. God will provide. It, it, it takes some time to get things turned around. Sometimes, as I said earlier, God, God leads in a roundabout way. And we can get frustrated with our freedom and trade it up for bondage. How foolish. Don't look back. Yesterday, I, I went over to my wife's uncle's house to pray for Ron. He is, um, well, we don't really know what he's dealing with, but in the last two weeks, he's lost nine pounds. And since March, he's lost a lot more than that. He's a couple inches taller than me, and he weighs about 140 pounds right now. Uh, he told me yesterday, I'm, I'm living on about 300 calories a day, 
And so we said, well, what's going on? Well, they don't, they don't know. Well, why can't you eat? He said, I'm just not hungry. He said, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. I have no appetite. Now, I'm no doctor, but, but I think we could all agree that if you don't have an appetite, that's a sign of a lack of health. And can I just tell you, it's the same spiritually. I, I don't say this to condemn you, but if you could just self-diagnose for a moment, if you have no appetite for the word of God, there, there's something missing. Jesus said, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. There's something, there's something that makes us want to get up and come to the house of God. There's a desire to, to hear a word from God, to receive a truth from God's word. There's something enjoyable about spending time in God's presence. Oh, sure, there's discipline. I don't always feel it. Sometimes I just faith it. You've been there too. But if you never have an appetite for the things of God, you need to know your soul is sick. There's something that's not right. And we need to pray and press in and say, God, show me how you want to feed me. Show me how you want to provide for my life. It's in the wilderness. God loves us enough sometimes that he'll strip away all of the distracting things that we put our trust and our time and our resources in. He loves us enough to let us out there long enough to realize, in reality, he's all we ever had. And then we begin to develop an appetite that says, God, I need you. We start saying like David, as the deer pants for water, my soul longs for you. In a dry and weary land, you are my water. God will let us wander in the wilderness to show us he's a provider. The third and the final thing is this, God's protection. We get a revelation of God's protection in a, in a greater way than ever before when we walk through the wilderness Look with me in Numbers chapter 22. The Israelites have now traveled all the way to Moab. They're on, the, they're on the banks of the Jordan River. They can see the promised land on the other side. And, and they've grown in number. And the Bible says in Numbers 22, verse 3, and Moab was terrified. Because there were so many people, talking about the Israelites. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. So what happened is Balak, the king of Moab, he sends messengers to a man named Balaam, who, who is a prophet, a diviner. And, and he hears that everybody that... Balaam blesses is blessed, and everybody that Balaam curses is cursed. And so he sends messengers to him. Look at verse 6. The message is, now come and put a curse on these people, because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is is cursed. And so here's Balak. He says, look, Balaam, I need you to, to curse the Israelites because they're too powerful for me. And I read that verse this week and I had this thought. I don't know if they memorize scriptures in hell. I think they do. I think the demons want to know the word so that they can deceive you about what it says and what it means. But I just think this is probably a, a, a verse that they all have to memorize. Now, come and put a curse on these people because they are too 
powerful for me. Can I just tell you that is the reality for the devil? Don't give him more credit than he deserves. You know, sometimes we, we think, oh, the devil's coming after me. He's really beating me up. Look, you're a child of God. You have all the authority and power of Jesus inside of you. Jesus and the devil are not equal and opposite and opposing forces. He is a, an ex-employee fired from heaven's throne room. The devil has no authority over your life, and, and so he'll send curses, and he'll try to come against you in ways because he's not powerful enough to defeat you on his own. Balaam, he agrees with King Balak. He says, okay, I'll come, but you got to understand how this works. I, I can't just say whatever I want to say. I have to say what God says. So Balaam, he comes, and he goes up on the mountain, and he looks down, and he sees the Israelites, and there's a lot of them. And so Balak pays him good money, and he builds a decent-sized altar, and he just waits to hear what kind of curse that Balaam is going to put on the people of God. And, and Balaam takes some time, and he prays, and he goes before the Lord, and when he opens his mouth to curse them, blessing comes out. He speaks blessing over the people. And the Moabite king is frustrated. He said, I, I brought you here to curse them. Why would you bless them? And he said, I, I told you up front, I can only say what God says to say. So he pays him more money. And he builds a bigger altar. And he sacrifices more animals. And he doesn't just do it twice. He does it three times. And every time he does it, Balaam stands up to curse the people of God. And nothing but blessing comes out. For the, he, I, I don't understand. What are you doing? I brought you here to curse these people. Now, now, I want you to look at a verse. If there was ever a scripture that you ought to highlight in your Bible, it's Numbers 23, verse 19 and 20. Balaam is explaining why, I, even though I want to curse these people for you, I really want the money that you're offering to pay me. It's just not working. I'm going to tell you why. He says, God is not human that he should lie, nor is he a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. Can I just tell you that is true of your life. If God has chosen to bless your life, there's nothing that anyone can do to change it. There's nothing that any circumstance can do to change it. God wants to protect you in the wilderness. Don't, don't fear the taunts. There's plenty of people that, that'll run their, their lips, and, and, and the enemy is a master of lies, and, and he'll try to intimidate. He's all bark and no bite. God is blessed, and what God has blessed, no man can curse. Sometimes, when you go through the wilderness, we feel exposed. We feel unprotected. Feels like everybody's cursing you. Feels like everybody's attacking you. The reality is you're blessed. You need to know that. You're blessed. God's for you. He's not against you. You know, in, in the ancient world, it was really important that they had walls around their cities. A city with, with fortified walls was a stronghold. It was a protected place. Jericho was the first city into the promised land, and, and, and it was known for its high and thick and strong walls. That's why Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is so, his job was so important because Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls. 
around the city of Jerusalem because if, if the city had walls again, then it was a sign to everybody else in the surrounding areas of the favor of God. It's a safe place. It's a prosperous place. It was, it was a sign to the people that lived in the city that you could go, and, go ahead and live your life with a, a measure of, of security and confidence because we're fortified here. We've got walls around our city. But what happened in Nehemiah's day often happens in, in our own lives is that once the job was done and the walls were up and everybody felt safe again, it wasn't too much longer until they began to just go back about the routine of their life and, and they forgot about God, they put their confidence in the walls. They forgot about him. That's why God in his grace sometimes leads us in the wilderness, because it's in the wilderness when we don't have the walls. We don't have the safety and security of all of our ingenuity to rely on. That We discover, again, God. God is a protector. This isn't the first time they've been here. I mean, 40 years earlier, the Israelites were right there in Moab. They were right there on the banks of the Jordan. They were looking into the promised land 40 years earlier. And when they went there that time, Moses had sent 12 spies in to check out the land, to come back and give a report about this place that God has promised us, this place that we have traveled to, this place that he said would be ours. Tell us what it looks like. And 10 of those spies came back, and it's recorded in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. It says, they gave Moses this account. The spies said, we went into the land to which you sent us, and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruits, and they showed them the huge fruits that they had gathered from the land. Verse 28 says, but the people who live there are powerful. And listen to this. Their cities are fortified and large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. So they began in that moment, rather than trusting in the protection of God, they began to put more confidence in man's ability to protect himself than in God's ability to protect his people. They, they, they overlooked the reality that, that God had led them through this wilderness, feeding them every day supernatural bread from heaven, causing water to flow out of a rock so they wouldn't be thirsty, causing the sandals they wore not to wear out and the clothes on their back to not wear out. No one in the camp of Israel got the diseases of all the nations around them that were plagued with diseases, and that's probably why they had to be completely obliterated. They didn't get any of that. They had none of those problems. God protected them all the way until they saw the fortified walls. And all of a sudden, they they felt like they had a deficiency that God couldn't overcome. But two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, they, they saw what was happening here. And they said, wait, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute. And in the next chapter, Numbers chapter 14, these two young men, they, they step up and they speak up. It says in verse 8, Joshua says, if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into the land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. I love that. That's like a good halftime speech. Don't be afraid of them. We're going to eat their lunch, right? We're going to devour them. And he's trying to rally faith. Look at what he says. He said, their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. 
Now, in reality, their protection wasn't gone. And while he's saying their protection is gone, the people are kind of looking over his shoulder. They can see Jericho with its high walls so thick that people like Rahab could have a house built into the wall. They're going, I don't think, I don't think their defense is gone. But Joshua was seeing the same thing that God showed him in Joshua chapter 6 when he came back for the second time. And he's looking at those same walls and God speaks to him and he says, see, I have given you the city. He's like, well, no, in the natural, I don't see. In the natural, it looks like it's still just as fortified as it was 40 years ago. In fact, I think they've made some improvements. God was speaking to his faithfulness. God was trying to get his people to see something beyond what we can experience tangibly in the, in the earthen realm and say, listen, I am your protector. I've always been. I always will be. I need you to see with eyes of faith what I'm doing for you. People didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. That generation died off short of the promise. David, David knew too what it was like. He had run from King Saul into Gath, and he was arrested by the Philistines, and he thought in that moment, this is probably the end of the story. They're going to kill me here. But it was in that place, outside of the protection of the caves that he had hid in in the past, that David wrote Psalm 56. He said these words, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whom I praise, In God, I trust, and I am not afraid. And then he says this. I love this. He says, what can mere mortals do to me? I mean, come on. That's an eternal perspective. I mean, what are you going to do? Eat me? I mean, you you can't take my soul. My faith is in God. My faith is in God. He said, what can mere mortals do to me? And so for all of us, it's not something we look forward to. It's not something we hope will happen, but it's true. The same God who puts man in the garden, puts him in the wilderness sometimes. And when you go through the wilderness, from what I can see in the story of this example is there's only two options we have. There's only two things you can do. You can either grumble or you can groan. Now, I know some of you might think that those two are the same thing, but in Scripture, they're very different. I'm going to give you several verses quickly here that communicate the choices that are before us. See, groaning, groaning is what the people of Israel did in Exodus 2 when the Lord said, I have heard their groans. And his heart was moved with compassion to rescue them and to deliver them. I've heard their groans. Groaning is something that is enshrined in sacred literature. David groaned so much that he was actually wore out by it. Psalm 6 and 6 says, I'm worn out. By my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. Groaning is actually something that's commanded in Ezekiel. Ezekiel said, Therefore, groan, son of man. Groan before them with a broken heart and bitter grief. Groaning is when we take the heavy burden that we carry and we bring it before the Lord. Grumbling is also spoke about plenty of times in the wilderness. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 15, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? Later, Moses reminded the same people in Deuteronomy 
you grumbled in your tents, and you said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out here to Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. See, they were grumbling. They were grumbling about God. In the Psalms, we hear about grumbling. It says, they grumbled in their tents, and they did not obey the Lord. See, the difference is this. Grumbling is forbidden in the word of God, but groaning is commended. When a person groans, they're calling out to God. When a person grumbles, they're just calling out about God. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Grumbling is complaining about God and his ways and what he's doing. Groaning is complaining to God. And that's all right sometimes, to just complain to God about what's happening in your life. See, groaning happens in God's face. Grumbling happens behind his back. Those that grumbled, they went into their tents and they closed the flaps where they thought they were unseen, where they could just have another pity party, where they could have their little woe is me and talk about how bad it is and they could stay the victim and play the victim instead of walking in the wilderness of freedom. That's grumbling, but groaning comes outside of the tents. Grumbling recognizes that the ground is holy. Groaning falls before the Lord and calls out to the God who is present, the God who provides, and the God who protects. I want to challenge you today. You feel like you're in a wilderness. What are you going to do? Are you going to grumble? Complain? Take another lap? Or are you going to stand there on the banks of the promise and cry out to God with a heart that groans, with a heart that's desperate for God? Groaning is spiritual prayer. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we know that creation itself groans. Creation groans for salvation for redemption, for deliverance. It says a few verses later in Romans 8, 23, it says, not only that, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of salvation, we have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit groans inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. A few verses later in Romans 8, 26, it says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't even know how we ought to pray, what do we do? The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. When you don't even know how to pray, don't complain. You say, God, I'm going to need you to pray through me. I need the Spirit. I need the cloud. I need, you to, I need you to direct me. I need you to guide me. I refuse to grumble and complain. God, I'm going to call out to you.